Father, thank you for this, this amazing parable and the power with which it, it strikes us in the chest and in the head with the importance of forgiving as we have been forgiven. What a, what a tremendous opportunity we have to live out the ramifications of the cross by learning how not just to live, but to forgive each other as we have been forgiven in Christ. And we pray that this be a, a hallmark, that this be a stellar attribute, uh, something that we, we strive to achieve more and more in our lives as disciples, Father, as we, we, we emulate Jesus in all that we do and we strive to be a bride that is beautiful in Your sight and to be a beautiful bride in this community. Father, thank You again for the teachings of Christ that lead our minds and shape our hearts. And we pray that in all that we do, that we live as He did, that we walk in His steps, that we pick up our cross each day and follow Him as His disciples. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some, uh, some years ago, uh, maybe about 2010, 2009, uh, it was my first uh, foray into Facebook. And uh, an amazing thing happened. Uh, I didn't really know that much about Facebook. Uh, you know, the kids were doing it, decided to, to launch out into Facebook with my own Facebook page. And lo and behold, a couple of weeks into having that page, I received uh, a message, an email. Didn't know that you could get that. It was a surprise to me that you could get uh, messages on Facebook like that that were private. And it was from a woman. I couldn't recognize her name to save my life. And after kind of looking at her name and kind of then finding out who she was on Facebook, turned out she was my first girlfriend in the seventh grade. There you go. And uh, it's not a pretty story, though. <laughs> I, I had, uh, uh, and I can't even remember the words that you, I mean, we're talking about something I had like 40 years ago. I can't even remember what I said to her, but it must have been something like, do you want to go out with me because I want to go out with you? And we ended up being boyfriend and girlfriend for two long weeks. And uh, it turned out that I was the gateway to the guy that she really had interest in uh, as, uh, in the middle school football team. Quarterback was a guy that, uh, that I guess all the girls uh, wanted to know, and she couldn't get very close to him, so she decided to go through his linebacker. And uh, we dated. We didn't even date. I mean, we just... I don't even think I carried her books. You know, I, we just kind of looked at each other and, you know, uh, I guess we shared milk one time. I mean, I don't know. And then one day I'm walking down the hallway, ready to leave to go home, and she hands me a note and, and, and leaves very quickly, which is never a good sign, a note, and they leave quickly. I get the note. I, it's like three pages long. I mean, it's top to bottom, side to side. It's just, it's just filled with words. And I read about the first paragraph, and the first paragraph was, Mark, I'm so sorry. I don't mean to hurt you but I really don't want to go with you. I want to go with John uh, Conaway, who is a quarterback. And I just, I feel so bad because I was using you to try to get to him. I'm in the seventh grade. I read it. I looked at it. I didn't even read. I read like the first paragraph, throw it in the trash, and I keep on booking. Well, apparently from the seventh grade to the twelfth grade, every time she came near me, I turned around and walked off. It's, I don't remember, but it kind of sounds like me. And... Forty years later, she is still feeling so bad about breaking my seventh grade adolescent heart. And I get this note from her. <laughs> Mark, please read this email. <laughs> Don't walk away. And after I figured out who she was. And she goes on to explain. She's just, for 40 years, she's been feeling so bad about this. And she wanted my forgiveness. 
seventh grade. But So I write back to her. I said, well, you know, we're in the seventh grade. I don't remember any of this very well. Uh, uh, but, I, you know, uh, knowing the way I was then, I was probably the jerk and probably need to ask you for forgiveness. But I say, you know, we were in the seventh grade. We didn't know what we were doing. It's 40 years ago. I forgive you, you forgive me, let's be friends. And she said, okay. And discovered that she has MS. And in a wheelchair. Prognosis not great. And uh, over the last year or so, been able to pray for her and to, to write notes to her and to try to encourage her and to ask her from time to time how she's doing. Forgiveness opens a lot of doors, does it not? One of the things that's, that's interesting about our culture is, is that we believe that, that forgiveness is just one of many individual experiences that we have in life. But the Bible teaches over and over again that that's not true, that, that forgiveness is something that is experienced in the community and that it's a community discipline that is practiced in the church for the health of the church. When you think about the two hardest things and there's a lot of hard things that Jesus teaches us about what it means to live as His disciple. But in, 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 in my thinking about being a disciple, the two hardest things to do is to love your enemies, to love those people that wound you, to, to, to love, to actively love those people that are doing evil to you and wounding you and causing you to hurt and to suffer and to grieve unfairly and unjustly at times. And the other is to forgive. Jesus says over in Matthew chapter 5 something very, very challenging. He says, you know what? If you only love those who love you, what are you doing that's any different from the pagans and tax collectors? In other words, if you just love people that are going to love you back, people that are going to give you a claim or they're going to give you some kind of return on your investment, then all you're doing is doing the pagan love, the tax collector love. They get that. They understand that. You're called to a different standard. You're to love those that persecute you and to turn the other cheek and, and all of that. Paul will say in Romans 12, to not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good, learning to love and to forgive other people. The second thing is what we're going to be talking about tonight in the teachings of Jesus, and that is learning how to forgive people. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 35, in what Ed just read for us, he says, if you do not forgive, my Father is going to do the same to you if you do not forgive. Now, what is that? To be thrown in jail and to be tortured. It's hard to love your enemies. And, it, and it's hard to forgive those that hurt you deeply, especially when they're a brother and sister in Christ. And that's why when Paul is talking about how Jews and Greeks and poor and rich and educated and uneducated in one of the greatest teachings in the New Testament about how the church is to be the church, the, the letter to the church in, in Ephesus, he says this at the end of chapter 4. He says, you love, you be kind with one another and compassionate to one another and you forgive each other. But he doesn't leave it there, does he? He finishes off with, you forgive each other just as in Christ God forgave you. That's the modifier. It's not just about forgiving, which is hard enough. It's about forgiving one another as, as in Christ, God has forgiven you. As you have been forgiven in Christ, that's how you forgive other people. Now behind his statement there, that modifier, I think is this parable in Matthew chapter 18. 
Because whether or not it's Jesus that's teaching or it's Paul that's working with those New Testament churches, it is hard to reconcile with somebody that's hurt you. It is difficult to do relationship repair. And that's why this parable is so important. Now, let me give you, as we work through this parable, I want to give you three facts on forgiveness. The first one is this. Just in general, forgiveness is crucial. Forgiveness is incredibly crucial. At the end of this parable, there is this, this wonderful king who forgives a servant a, a great debt. It is an immeasurable amount of money. And the servant, in turn, does not become a forgiving person as, as a response to the forgiveness that he has experienced. And at the end, we're told that the king turns to him because he has choked his fellow servant and has demanded that he pay back the small sum of money after he's been forgiven a lot, and he wants him to be turned over to the jailer and tortured. Not just jailed, but tortured. But tortured. And to make sure that the point is made, Jesus says this is how God will treat us if we do not forgive other people especially in light of the cross. Now here's the point. An unforgiving heart is an eternal liability to you and to me. An unforgiving heart is an eternal liability. Now now wait a minute. Do we not read in the New Testament, in fact, in that same letter that Paul wrote to the, to the church in Ephesus, primarily Ephesians chapter 2, do we not read that we are saved by grace? That it's not by our own works, lest we should get the credit, but it's by it's this gift of God. It's grace so that He is glorified in saving us. Are we now teaching that if we forgive people, we're going to go to heaven, and if we don't forgive people, we're going to go to eternal punishment? Well, no, I don't think that that's what Jesus is saying. I think Jesus is saying that when you close your heart in forgiveness, it proves that your heart is closed to forgiveness. The fact that this servant did not open his heart to mercy to that other servant proved that his heart had not really been opened to the king's mercy to him. And here's the thing. A forgiving heart is a sign of being forgiven and being impacted by God's grace. You know, we talk a lot about that Coke machine. That, that our, you know, We're a lot like those old-fashioned Coke machines where you put that quarter in, it's got to go all the way down into the inside, and that's where you can access it. And if it doesn't, then you're not going to be able to access that money to get that, that coke out. It's the same with the, with the teachings and, and the, the, the principles that we read about, the commandments that we read about in the New Testament. They have to go all the way down. They have to drill down deeply into our heart through worship and meditation and prayer, help of the Spirit and, and, and by teaching and, and, and through the fellowship that we have with one another to get down into our hearts so that we are changed. And a sign that it's getting there, is that we're becoming more and more forgiving in the right kinds of ways, in biblical ways, with one another within, within the confines of the church. Let me explain it this way. What fruit is famous for being grown and bought at exorbitant prices in Fredericksburg, Texas? Peaches, right? So you got two peach trees. There's one peach tree that is lush. I mean, the green leaves are out, the, the peaches are ripe, it's a beautiful tree, and then you've got one that's standing right next to it, that's, that's rooted right next to it, that is barren, it's brown, there's nothing on it in terms of fruit, and you look at those two trees and you can automatically tell what's happening, right? With that dead tree, you look at it and you say, you know, there's no life in that tree. 
There are no leaves. There is no fruit that's being born. There is no life in that tree. It is dead. It's not rooted in a place that is giving it life and vitality. It is flourishing not at all. But then you look at that other tree, and it's got beautiful green leaves, and it's vibrant, and it's lush, and the luster that's on those peaches is vibrant. I mean, you just want to go over and grab one. And you look at that tree, and you go, this tree is rooted in the right kind of soil. It's got the resources. It is being impacted on the inside so that it's bearing fruit. And the life that we see in that fruit is an indicator that it's rooted in the right way to the right stuff. Now, this is, this is so simple, it's nearly you know, insulting to ask it, but are those peaches that are hanging on the tree giving life to it? No. Those peaches are a sign that there is life in that tree. And that's one of the ways that forgiveness is a sign of the spiritual dynamic that is happening in the inner self that we are tending to the inner life and to our heart and to our thought life and to our, our heart life in such a way that it is bearing fruit. Now, it sounds harsh in this parable to say that he's not forgiving. Put him in prison to be tortured. But it is extremely realistic. Not only in the sense of eternal punishment because of, of, of closing the heart off to forgiveness, but even think about it as, as a, a present punishment. When you refuse to forgive someone, it makes you feel so righteous. It makes you feel like as, as a victim you're owed something. That all of a sudden, as a victim, you have attained the higher moral ground. You're, you're self-centered on that victimization. But in, but in all of that, in all of that emotional disruption, and all of that, that pity, what you're doing is really putting yourself in this small cell. Now by grace... You have been forgiven this infinite debt of sin. And every moment that you live, you are living as, as the product of, of the gift of grace in your life. And the servant was given this immeasurable debt that was forgiven, and it should have made him forgiving of lesser debts. But it didn't. It didn't change him in the least. The effect of forgiveness was blocked in his life. And when you refuse to forgive someone, you make the other person liable to you and they owe you and you want to hurt them and you want to control them and you want to string it out and all you're doing is creating this, this cell around you and inside of the cell you're living with bitterness and resentment. Frederick Beekner. Uh, a, a great writer of the 80s and the 90s in a, in a book called Wishful Thinking says, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you're giving back, well, in many ways, it's a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback, he writes, is that what you're wolfing down is yourself. And the skeleton at the feast is you. Do you see why forgiveness is crucial? Do you see why forgiveness in the kingdom of God is crucial? Forgiveness is a sign of the spiritual condition of your heart. And everyone, everyone I know, including myself, from time to time compiles a list of faces that they would like to punch. 
but you're the one that's really being punished when you don't forgive. So forgiveness is crucial. Number two, forgiveness is a process. In verse 27, we find three things to do in this, this verse by Jesus. Verse 27 says, The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Three things. Took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Now, if you want to avoid being twisted and put in prison now and forever by your anger, you're going to want to do these three things. The first is to take pity. It's a really strange word. I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. It's, it, it's got G's and N's and, and CH's kind of running together. I'm not going to try to announce it. But what it means in the original language is to have your heart to go out to another. It is, it's more than just feeling sorry for them. It's your heart is going to go out to another person. Now again, what does that mean? We say it all the time. My heart goes out to those. His heart has gone out to those that, that are in this tragedy. What does it mean, really, for your heart to go out to somebody? It means that you have entered into this process where you are beginning to identify with them. That you're beginning to feel what they feel. Not just know intellectually that this is kind of a tough road that they've been given to hoe, that this is, a, that this is a, a, a piece of turmoil emotionally for them to deal with that's probably difficult. No, you're beginning to identify your heart, that place where you feel is going out and beginning to feel what it is that they feel. You're deliberately doing this inner work of reminding yourself how much you have in common with this person. Now, quite frankly, you don't really want to do that. Your heart does not want to do that. Your heart wants to accentuate the differences between you and this enemy who has caused you so much disastrous pain in your life. Do you really know how to stay mad at somebody? I mean, we may not have thought about it very, very closely, but we're all really good at, at staying mad at somebody. And, and the way that we do that is we turn them into a caricature of themselves. You take one or two things about them, you blow it out of proportion. You exaggerate foreheads and noses and lips and ears, and all of a sudden you've got this person that really doesn't look like themselves, but you kind of identify them, and that's who they are in your eyes. Now, for example, we have somebody ever famous up here on the screen. Everybody knows who that is. Here is the caricature of a very beautiful woman named Marilyn Monroe. Now, when somebody lies to you, it hurts. And sometimes it's disastrous in the relationship in terms of financial dealings or, or if there's some kind of uh, relational upheaval emotionally because, because of the lie. And they lie to you and they hurt your feelings and you don't trust them anymore. And you ask yourself, why in the world did they lie to me? I mean, I, I never did anything to deserve the lie. Why in the world are they lying to me? That's really a bad thing. Oh, I know why they lied to me. It's because they're a liar. They're a liar. And you begin to think of that person completely in terms of being a liar. You've reduced them to one dimension. They're a liar. Whenever you see that person coming down the pew or coming down the aisle or in the parking lot, you go, there's that liar. But then somebody asks you, do you ever lie? And you look down and you say, well, sometimes. Have you ever lied before? Yes. Why did you lie? Well, it's complicated. I shouldn't have done it, but it's complicated. You never really hear anybody say, you know why I lied? It's because I'm a liar. 
because I'm a liar. They never say that. They say, I'm a human being. For goodness sake, give me a break. I'm three-dimensional, not two-dimensional. But that's what we do to everybody else. They're a liar. They're a gossip. They're a cheat. They're putting on airs. To take pity on someone is to deliberately find out how you are the same. Miroslav Volf, who I think in, in, in our generation right now is the greatest theologian on the subject of forgiveness, says this. He says that forgiveness flounders when I exclude the sinner from the community of human beings and myself from the community of sinners. Because I don't take pity. So you take pity and then number two, you cancel the debt. And here's where we get to the heart of forgiveness. The key is to understand the size of the debt that was forgiven in the parable. 10,000 talents. Fantastic sum. Sometimes the commentators kind of get carried away and it's a billion dollars and sometimes they say it's a trillion dollars. The point is, in Jesus' culture, it was an amount of money that no one was ever going to be able to pay back. Which brings up this interesting question. How in the world could a servant, that's the word, have lost this amount of money? Probably not a butler or a maid in the Downton Abbey sense of the word, but probably a servant in the sense of a government official. I spent some time this, this last, uh, last week talking with an expert in this particular part of the parable in the ancient world, Randy Thompson. And one of the things that he helped me to see is that uh, during this period of time that Jesus is giving this parable, you know, you would have this emperor or this, 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 this head king over lots of smaller governors or smaller kings over different provinces. And these provinces would gather up money and they would end up with this one king, but everybody had their own money to disperse. And so probably what this is, is one of these lesser kings or these lesser, lesser bureaucratic governmental servants who has been given an enormous amount of money for some kind of an investment, some kind of a, a public uh, project or, or some, some private project, but it was money that was probably taken and lost through one of two ways, mismanagement or corruption. Now this emperor figure, this, this, this big king, could have jailed this servant, sold off his assets to begin to repay the enormous amount, but it would not have paid off everything that he owed. But this lesser servant gets down on his knees, begins to beg for mercy, and instead of, 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 of putting him in prison and, and, and selling off his assets and his, his family to pay off this, this debt that can never be paid back, he instead chooses to absorb the debt within his own kingdom. To cost his kingdom. To absorb the debt financially in his own treasury of riches. He paid it himself. And so one of the things that we see about forgiveness is that it means that you absorb the debt rather than making the other person pay. You absorb the debt rather than making the other person pay. So how does that work? Well, I, I borrow your truck one day to, to move a couch and through the mismanagement of weight and the size of the couch and how weak I really am, I put a dent in the bed of the truck. And after bringing it back to you, I say, I need to show you something in the back of the truck. There's this little dent over here by the wheel well, and I, I need to pay for it. I've got insurance. I'll, I'll pay for it. And the owner, because he is gracious, says, oh, forget about it. 
It was just mismanagement. It was an accident. I'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. But here's the thing. The debt to get that dent fixed does not disappear magically and mysteriously. It does not disappear into thin air. What it means is that the owner of that pickup in forgiving my debt has to pay the debt himself. Now just to be clear, when we choose to forgive someone, we choose to suffer the loss. We choose to suffer in order to let the other one go. They hurt us. We want that pound of flesh. We think that will make us feel better, but it won't in the end. So we let go of that and we suffer in order to let them off the hook. So how does that work without money? Say, inside of our own church family. Someone gossips about you says some things that are absolutely untrue. But you know how the church is from time to time. People say things that are untrue. They get mad. They get aggravated. They get the wrong idea about you. And so they say something that's untrue to one of your friends or to one of their friends. And the next thing you know, you realize that there's this, this thing that's going around that is absolutely untrue about you. You've lost a good name, unfairly. You've lost a good reputation, unjustly. And you feel that loss, and it's painful. You feel that pain. And that person is liable to you because they've lied about you. They've gossiped. Not only have they lied about you, but they have spread the virus throughout the church. They owe you. So what do you do? Well, you can make them pay by going and gossiping about them. They're a liar. <laughs> They're a liar. Why, what are you doing listening to a liar? When you see that person, think liar. Big mouth. Lies come out of it. They're a liar. Or you can retaliate by berating them, either privately or publicly. And you say, why in the world are you talking about me this way? What did I ever do to you? It's absolutely false. Why are you talking about me this way? You can berate them privately or publicly. Or if you decide to go kind of the, 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 the noble, unchristian way, you may not say anything, you may just take it, but in your heart, you root for them to have a bad life. And you rejoice when they weep, and you weep when they rejoice. Oh, we get turned upside down and bent and distorted. And you think it's going to make you feel better because they suffered just like you have. But that will twist you, my friends. And that will spread a virus throughout our church family. The alternative is for you to pay. It's for you to suffer by refusing to destroy their reputation. And when you do that bit by bit, you begin to cut off the oxygen to the resentment and to the bitterness and your heart softens rather than hardens. And then number three, you're able to let them go. You're able to let them go. As an aside, going back to that money that was lost, was the loss of money through mismanagement or corruption? Well, the text does not explicitly say, but we know that the king forgave a great, great debt to a great, great cost to himself and to his kingdom. His kingdom was put at risk because he absorbed this debt. Probably thought that it was mismanagement, and so he lets the servant go. And this forgiven servant should be so happy, he should be so elated, he should be giddy with the forgiveness 
But instead he goes out and he chokes. He chokes, my friends. He chokes another servant over really nothing. How ugly is the forgiven when they're not forgiven? And when the king hears about this and he sees through all of these actions, he, he gets a view of the man's heart and he sees how wicked he really is. He understands this is probably not mismanagement. This is corruption which changes everything. And the unforgiving man was thrown into the jail because he was wicked on the inside even though he had been forgiven much. You see, the reason this parable is told is because reconciliation is the goal. Forgiveness that leads to reconciliation is the goal. Now, you know, reconciliation and is such a big subject, we don't have time to talk about it, but this is where the rubber hits the road. Right before the parable, there's a teaching by Jesus on how relationships in the community of faith how they're salvaged when damaged. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, and it's not really if as if it might or might not happen, it's really when it happens, when this brother sins against you, there are things that you're supposed to do in the kingdom of God. This is about Christians. It's about people who profess the gospel sinning against each other. The relationship is ruptured. How do you put it back together again so that the body of Christ is intact? Well, he says, you don't give up on that relationship. That person hurts you. That person says something, causes your heart to break, wounds you deeply. You do not give up on that relationship. In one place he says, if you go to worship and you're there at that altar and you're ready to make the sacrifice and you remember that your brother has something against you, you've got to deal with it right then. Leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled. Then come back and offer your sacrifice. You can't give up on the relationship. So, number one, he says, go yourself and talk in private with this guy or this gal about what happens. And if everything is forgiven and reconciled and you won your brother and everything's fine, you go and you live life. But if it happens sometimes that, you know, it gets a little sticky and it's a he said, she said, or whatever it might become, then number two, you get the church involved. You take some people to establish the facts and you work it out. You work it out. And if they still will not reconcile, there's still no forgiveness, there's still, it's not working, he says you treat them like a tax collector. Now, what in the world does that mean? What does it mean? You know, sometimes we think that means that we just were able to turn our back on them and just shun them. But here's the thing. When it comes to tax collectors and pagans and sinners, Jesus loved them. And did He not sit down and eat with them, which was a sign of this fellowship uh, that He was sharing with them at that point in the sharing of that bread and that, that meal? And was he not criticized for being a friend to tax collectors and sinners? I don't, I don't really think that that's what he's talking about. He loved the tax collectors and sinners. He was criticized about being around them and getting too chummy with them. I think what he is saying is that the church has to figure out how to communicate to this person who will not forgive, who will not reconcile, that they do not deserve to wear the name of Christ. It's that serious. When you're not willing to forgive and to reconcile and to, and to reorder your steps in your life in direction of the godliness of the kingdom that you are called to live out explicitly in Scripture through the commands of, 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 of Jesus and His apostles, 
and you are negating the work of the cross in your life, you do not deserve to wear the name of Christ. You say you're a Christian, but you're denying the very gospel that you profess. You do not deserve, you don't have the right to wear the name Christian. It's that serious. The funny thing, though, is that that's not the way that God has treated us. Jesus took pity on us. Saw that we were unable to save ourselves and we were cast astray, untethered from righteousness because of the presence of sin in our life. There was no hope of us getting better. The first 11 chapters of Genesis prove that over and over again. We're not getting better. We're just getting worse and worse and worse at times. He took pity on us and identified with us by leaving heaven, that, that perfect harmony of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And He became a human. And on that cross, He took pity, a pity on us and He identified with us by taking our sin. It's in compassion, His heart going out to us that put Him on that cross, the ultimate example of compassion. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 21, that He absorbed the punishment that we deserve in order for us to take on the righteousness that He had. And when you think about that and you think about it and it goes like that coin in those old Coke machines down into the center of your heart, you realize, why in the world would I ever in this life ever, ever, ever not be a super forgiver of other people? Now again, there's more to it than just letting somebody off the hook in terms of, of, of consequences that sometimes they have to, to pay. And reconciliation also uh, requires... Uh, repentance. But all forgiveness is really doing is taking all of those obstacles out of the way to a reconciliation and a relationship that bears the cross of Jesus so that it can be reconciled when it does go wrong. And to be willing to take up your own cross, which means that you're going to die to self and you're going to deny to self and you're not going to to insist on saving your life, but you're going to lose your life. And you're not going to be first, but you're going to be last. You're going to humble yourself like Jesus humbled Himself. And you're going to bear one another's burdens and to forgive each other as in Christ God forgave us. That's the modifier. That's the call. Maybe you've never ever experienced that kind of forgiveness. Tonight you can do that by repentance and the confession of Jesus as Lord and baptism where your sins are washed away. You receive that gift of the Holy Spirit. You come into the fellowship of the church. You become a member of, of the, the body of Christ. And all of that can happen tonight by just coming down this aisle and talking to these shepherds who are going to be down here at the front and talking to them about the need for you yourself to be forgiven. And when you experience that, I mean really profoundly experience that, then it will turn you into a different kind of forgiver than we find normally in the world. If that describes you tonight, Jeff's going to lead us in a song. Shepherds will be down here at the front. Come down and talk to him as we stand and sing together.